talks about passion between a woman and a man. Chris Dyer and his creative friends, darling. Ooh, 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 ooh. We arrive to the home of the great Spoon Bee. Hi! Welcome back to Chris Dyer's Creative Friends, the super fun YouTube podcast show where me, your artist friend Chris Dyer, talks to his creative friends. Today, I'll be talking to one of my best friends, Mr. Barry Walsh, who is uh, better known as a legendary Canadian pro skater. He's also a DJ, a father, a graffiti writer, BMX uh, fixer-upper, uh, artistic director, etc., etc., etc. He's a guy I've known for many years. We've, we've collaborated on a bunch of projects from like skateboard brands to clothing to parties and DJ art shows, etc., etc. We've done so many things together and I'm really excited to have a little conversation with him. You might already see him in, in my documentary or in the adventure episode of uh, Montreal. But today we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. So how you doing, my brethren? I'm good, thank Woo. you. So sick to uh, be here in your uh, humble home studio, uh, you know, Ghetto Supreme, as you call it. Uh, in uh, what, what neighborhood we're in? We're in the uh, heart of Park X, I'd say, Park Extension. Cool, by Jerry Park, more or less, huh? Yeah, more or less. So I pretty much refer to this as the, the Park X dugout. Nice. And you've been here for like a year, huh? One year, yeah. I've been here one year. Nice. That's awesome. So I want to start by asking you if you remember how we met. Mm, yeah, I think we met in a back alley in St. Henry. It was like a back alley party, I guess. Big sale. I forget how. I think it, it was like a, a block party. But yeah, like it was a, a block party. But a exactly. real block Ugh. party. Not like, you know, mm -hmm. like a fabricated block party by a brand or festival but actually like the neighbors yeah just no, everybody was... brings their shit out and some people are DJing and you know St. Henry was really cool back then right yeah for sure I think that was like what 2001 maybe 2002 ish uh no actually 2004 ish okay that's when okay. I was first coming out ah, of school okay. trying to sell my skateboard mm -hmm. art yeah I had lived in that loft building for like 13 years so we would do mad parties in that back alley and often no one would bother us because it was a one-way street but sometimes we would put barriers so they would just assume the city closed it uh. it would last all day and then if the cops would show up and say hey did you guys close the street we'd say no the city did it early this morning you know uh-huh no cool. one was accountable because we'd say oh i live over there he lives there da, da, da. yeah yeah this is our hood yeah. like, what are you gonna do like kick us back yeah. to our apartment everybody knows the 3035 saint antoine in montreal right you know there's so many things popped off in that building it's a very ghetto looking building it's always yeah. got graffiti in the front and for sure the many... front door is broken you can never receive mail right yeah well many writers lived in that building and I gratefully was leaving just as all those crews were coming in. Cause I mean, I love graph one love to all the crews, but it's not a place to live in a building where a graffiti crew is, you know, headquarters is means it's, it's running all night. 
there's parties, there's the smell of paint, you know what I mean? It was live and direct to say the least. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, we met in that back alley. I used to love that loft you, you were living there back in the day. Mm -hmm. You remember what the rent was for that loft? Uh, that was, uh, I think it was, uh, what, what, it was 420 a month. No ah. shit. No pun intended, but it was 420 a month and at the time. A, it was a huge law. Oh, dude, that would be like two G's now for sure. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Well, St. Henry in general has gotten a lot more gentrified and less ghetto and stuff. Yeah, it's changed drastically in 10 years for sure. Yeah. Too bad, huh? Because that's yeah, like, it was I guess nice. ghetto's not, not good because it's kind of like not safe for the kids and stuff. At the same time, it's like a place where you can be more free in a way. Yeah, it's you know it was just a, a mix of a mix of like families and with that big loft building, it brought a lot of interesting characters, you know. Right, like and, everybody in that building was an artist. Yeah, to a certain degree, man. That building saw a lot of uh, antics and energies. Product and, lived uh, there. Yeah, uh, Mark Tisson lived there. Did Moss live there? Yeah, I think Monkey lived there too. No, oh, yeah? yeah, I don't. I think a lot of, uh, you know, K6A crew, uh, many other uh, writers, skateboarders, uh, you know, one was a porn studio. It was just all kinds of crazy shit going on. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. Well, yeah. good old days. The little hood that could. So um, let's start at the beginning of uh, your skateboard career because uh, I guess that's uh, the way that you got out more in the world. When, when did you start mm. skating? Uh, really started skating. My first like banana board was like 1979. Mm -hmm. Then around 83 is when I really got into skating. Like kind of got back on a skateboard and was like, wow, this is, this makes me feel good, you know? Mm -hmm. So then I had my first wooden skateboard. I remember my stepdad had paved the driveway that year. That's why I remember. And I left grooves in the driveway and he was bummed out about that for sure. I was learning how to tic-tac in the driveway. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, started in 83 in Point Claire, Valois, mm -hmm. a suburb of Montreal. Basically. Okay, nice. And when did you get like really serious about it where you're like, okay, I want to do this as a profession? Well, I kind of never looked at it as a, as a profession. I just was like, this is what I know I want to do over anything else. And I knew that where it was taking me, I was starting to make money doing skate demos. I was starting to get free equipment, gear, stuff I needed. So from the simple place I was living in my mind at that time, I was like, this is way better than conforming to something that I didn't want any part of and wasn't right. making me excel or feel good. Yeah, because you quit high school for escape. Yeah, right? in grade nine. And I remember telling my principal and my mother at the time, like, this is what I'm doing with my life. And they both laughed at me. How, what is your age then? Oh, there I was like 17. Okay. Yeah, by the time I was 19, I had moved to Vancouver. I was supposed to go visit for like a week and I stayed like for nine months. Mm -hmm. And then I, I'd come back to skate to Big O. I'd go back there and then I ended up staying for almost 10 years. Damn. So skating kind of a lot opened up because I'd kind of done everything in Montreal. We didn't have an uh, indoor skate park in the winter I was excelling at vert skating. 
Plus the industry wasn't here yet. Yeah, there was no industry. And I mean, again, I still wasn't at a point where I saw like, oh, I could make something of this. I was just more like, man, I'm learning. I'm, I'm like falling in love with this culture, you know? Mm -hmm. So How was it in Vancouver? Oh, it was next level because I was skating with like some of the best skaters on the planet. I sort of knew somewhat who they were. But when you see Colin McKay skate in real life and Sluggo and, you know, Sam Devlin and a bunch of other skaters, but just they had their own kind of spot called the Richmond Skate Ranch. Okay. So when I started skating there, I must have been this loner dude to them because I, I knew nobody. I used to wear this uh, track suit and I would skate in a full-on polyester tracksuit so they thought i was some fucking whack job from quebec you know <laughs> i remember some skaters there like referred to me as frenchy they just figured he's from quebec he's a but you, you only know, didn't speak french a little bit i mean i i'm working on speaking more of it but point is is yeah they just kind of stereotype me you know but once i started to meet the locals the groove was there But like I said, when you go from skating in Montreal with three or four friends, you know, Marc Tisson was on a level like he was kind of like excelling fast, but with like a just such a natural style and mm -hmm. the tricks he, he would do, he does them his way, you know. Mm -hmm. Even though we skated many years together, we would learn a lot of the same tricks, but we never did them the same. Right. And he was generally better at anything backside. Mm -hmm. you know so you develop these understandings when you skate with someone for 25 plus years right but so mark you know when i went to vancouver i he was still in school i was like i'm out of here there's nothing here for me i'm going to vancouver mm -hmm. so you know everything kind of started there you know uh, a legendary skater from the east coast named john Raimondo. He took in us East Coasters visiting Vancouver like uh, group home kids almost because he owned the boarding house skate shop. So I was down with all these East Coast skaters who lived there, Mike Pragnell, uh, John Raimondo, uh, you know, Jeff Logan. There's a bunch of East Coasters just living the dream, you know. Mm -hmm. So John Raimondo immediately took care of me as far as like needing anything skate wise so i was super humbled to be like you got your first sponsors more or less like the boarding house skate shop was a thorough sponsor at the time because he didn't care what you needed he'd set you up you know bearings decks shoes i had a shoe sponsor through garrett louis etnies mm -hmm. and he took really good care of us too you know we weren't making any essential money i wasn't But I was always hustling on the sidelines, making money some way or another to live this dream, you know? Mm. So What was a side hustle? Uh, you know, like a little bit like this character Spoonie B at the time, you know what I mean? We had $5 J's, you know, we were, we were moving amongst skateboarders, artists, uh, Just a lot of like artistic movements. I was doing skateboarding demos. I was teaching skateboarding. Mm -hmm. I was just starting to get into DJing. So I was getting the odd DJ gigs here and there. You know, I take on warehouse jobs for like three months at a time, but never longer. Because yeah. then I would start to realize this is sucking 
you resist the yeah. Babylon yeah, like you know, I was, jobs. I always maintained, but at, back then I was on a skater couch budget. You know, I'd pay two hundred bucks rent for ten years because I never rented more than a room in a house full of other skaters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you manage to to uh, to ride the wave for quite a while, but you know, in the long run, I moved back to Montreal. For more like to get back to my roots, quality of, uh, I missed the city life of Montreal. I missed my friends. I missed the graffiti in this city. Uh, you know, clearly I missed the big O. Mm -hmm. But uh, I miss a million things about Vancouver as well. So what is the big O? The big O is a 100% natural skate spot that was originally designed as a the tunnel that you walk through to get to the training track of the 1976 Olympics. So when the Olympics came and gone, they left this big concrete whistle, which is the big old tunnel. That was also an ode to native culture because I believe it was built on uh, native land or it was um, an ode to, to the games. So the, the Olympic torch went through at one point. Right. They would run the Olympic torch through that. And it was also covered in the same uh, track rubber that you would see on a running track. Because it, it, it was, yeah, it, it connected to the track and field. Mm -hmm. So when the Olympics left, it became the perfect structure for skating. But it took almost two decades to peel all the little track rubber off. Mm-hmm. Some crews tried to burn it off. It made it even more of a mess. Ah. So it would come off in smaller than a, a one cent piece. It was just, you know, it was kind of tedious. It took years to remove that, yeah. that rubber. You know, you might have been lucky enough to skate it when there was still a bit of the track rubber. I, I never did, but I think at one point you gave me a little piece of that rubber right. that I still have. So <laughs> now there's basically no more track rubber for the last 15 years for sure, maybe 20 but uh you made yeah, a book so, about it yeah the pipe fiends book buy yeah. it if it's still available online yeah it's it will good. be available at uh, embassymtl.com yes yeah how was making a book making a book was a little tedious but uh again it was not something i had planned a independent publisher approached me for the book and my friend mark so uh we both had a couple shoe boxes of photos she saw them she was like, oh my God, there's more than a book here. Do you want to do this? She signed us each a minimal check on the spot. So a year later, produced that book, which was illustrated by Hest One, a really dope graph writer. And then, uh, yeah, all the photography is like a bunch of legendary skate photographers from Canada and abroad the world. But uh, yeah, it was kind of like, I think it was more, makes more sense now why that book was done. You know, it's kind of like captures a history and it captures uh, like sort of, I don't know how to say it, but it's kind of like, like all these uh, skaters that have come back. Yeah. There's some dead people in there skating. Yeah, that's it. It's, it's people from around the world, from the biggest to the smallest uh, have skated it, got broke off, fucking left glorious. It's, it's and, got, it, and it saved the pipe, yeah. this book in a way, because yes. it was kind of like uh, evidence that it meant, meant a lot to a lot of people True. when it was at risk. You yeah. want to tell that story of how the pipe was almost lost? 
for sure. I mean, I don't go into depth. I'm so tired of talking about the pipe, not in a bad way, but the, the real truth is that Pipe Fiend's book, Mark Tisson slipped it to a security guard who managed to get it to Joey Saputo. So who's a big corporation here? Right, he owns the soccer team, the uh, Montreal Impact Soccer Club. So he had that stadium built. When he saw the book, he had reconsidered having it destroyed because he had realized, wow, this has so much history. He had actually seen archive photos in the book that he doesn't even have of the land he just bought. Mm. So he was impressed by that. And he said, we're going to have it moved. Mm -hmm. We're 100% going to preserve it. He called us for a roundtable meeting. And uh, he did as he said. That's awesome. I, yeah. I just think it's a beautiful story. And sorry if I make you repeat yourself. No, it's all good. It, I mean, it, it's people really want to look into it. I'm stoked that they will. But it's, so unusual. it's online. And, yeah. It's so unusual that a corporation would spend over $100,000 to move a skate spot just because skaters enjoy it. It almost seems like it makes no sense. We could see Job like, provide. You know? You know, the universe provides where such energies are, are so strong. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I realized later. Like, you know, our spot is not like the illest or the most. It's more like it's, it's got roots and it has real blood history. It's not a hype spot because of the hype. It's known because it has decades and decades of, of stories, you right. know. It's a spiritual spot. Like. It's very spiritual, you know. Like, yeah. it's not for everybody, though. Like I said, a lot of people say, oh, it's hard to skate, da, da, da. Yes, it's hard to skate. That's, it's, go to any surfer that surfs big waves. Every wave's hard to skate. To, to ride that's why they surfed them they, right the challenge is yeah, the beauty that's also what's kept us so hungry to skate it all these years is because we other skaters will come here and influence us mm -hmm. by doing something we're like whoa we thought it was too tight to do that but then some kid comes and rolls in switch on this skinny deck so then Mark and I are like, damn, we got to roll in switch now. Oh, shit. You know, this kid just came and shined us just like that. And we, we ripped with the kid for like four hours straight. Mm -hmm. And then he told us he grew up, his dad built him a super tight mini ramp in a barn. Uh -huh. So I was like, ah, that's why you can skate this thing so well. But he loved it. Right. And we exchanged energies, even if I was 25 years older than he was, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the pipe is a mystical skate spot. You know, it's it's earned its reputation all around the world, enjoyed by, you know, all forms of, of, of skaters. Beautiful. So you've been skating for a bunch of years. You were sponsor, you were am at one point, and at one point you became pro. What, what brand made you pro? Uh, well, first I had a pro model on Cherry Bomb Skateboards. Mm -hmm which was a crazy company because like the story behind it was uh kind of off the grid antics mm -hmm. and uh the riders it has a great history i think it lasted about two years was but McCrank on it? McCrank was the first pro okay and then he went to plan b uh-huh and then I, girl first right uh birdhouse no he went to no birdhouse. he was on a few brands but i think okay. his first one was plan b okay then it might have been Birdhouse. I don't know, but for sure he's... And then he went to Girl, as we all know. Right, right. But anyways, uh, Cherry yeah, Cherry Bombs was the first 
board I had, I had ended up winning this amateur contest. And then I guess the, the skateboarding federation or whatever said, you won the amateur contest. So now you're in slam city, you're pro. Wow. So I said, what? Like, I don't, I don't have any say in this. They're like, you're entered. Uh huh. That's a weird way to become pro. Yeah, it was to me. It was, I was like, okay, cool. I was like, if they think, you know, they put me in there. So I wasn't prepared. Like I never was a type of skater that trained or had lines figured out. I just, if I could do my first two walls, then, you know, I'd usually plan for the third wall. But, uh, my point is being put into Slam City Jam from some amateur contest is quite the step up. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, I had nothing to prove. So I was okay with it. Cherry Bombs had produced this pro model for me, which my late great friend Akira had painted. So I was very stoked about that. And uh, yeah, I think I, at the time I was paid like 600 a month, which was a lot of money when you were getting nothing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I was very grateful. Then later down the road, I'd had a couple of uh, models on different brands. Like what brands you been on? Well, I had a model on Skull Skates, had a model on Creation Skateboards, Ooh. had models uh, on personal brands like Urban Ambush, a uh, couple Home, of other homegrown. homegrown skateboards. I did great collaborations with seeing he makes the best skateboards in uh, Canada, right. in La Have, Nova Scotia. I got to go so, out there and interview yeah. him. He's got such an oh, interesting dude, you, situation. You have to, 100%. Yeah, cause we'll go. go together. We'll drive. Okay, cool. Next summer, let's do a road trip to mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. Check out his skateboard barn. We have to. Slash bakery. Oh, it's unbelievable, Chris. I won't even get into talking <laughs> about it because it's, it's a utopia. Sick. Well, and you know, and you're always backed by Vans shoes and yeah. Ace Trucks. My and... present sponsors today is Ace Trucks, Vans shoes, uh, and uh, RX bearings. Okay, nice. Yeah. I didn't know that one. And yeah. uh... and Topless Pizza hooks Mark and I up with most stuff we need from a shop, whether it be grip tape, hardware, stuff like that. But shout out to Roger from Topless Pizza. Beautiful. As somebody who's been part of the skate scene and industry for decades, what's your point of view on skateboarding or even the industry these days? Like things have changed. Uh, how, how do you observe it as somebody in his late 40s who still mm. skates and still involved? Yeah, I guess, you know, like there's always going to be, I realize the hype of skateboarding has exploded and like there's a certain degree that it's going to be what it's going to become. But I personally try to stay close to what I fell in love with. And I'm only so engaged in the industry to the point where it doesn't run my life. You know what I mean? Right. I'm very grateful to the industry support that I do get. But um, yeah, I think that I just, without sounding corny, I try to grasp the culture because a lot of it is floating away into a world of, like substanceless hype sort of right you know nothing is cherished where before we cherished moments now the clips are so fast and you know like but i mean the evolution is amazing the the actual act of the skating the art form is amazing from the evolution the the uh progression it's more you know like it's more how 
skateboarding has uh, been taken over by huge corporations that I'm kind of not stoked on. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, those people that are getting paid by those big corporations, I'm not saying that they don't deserve it because they probably definitely do. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, industry coming in and knocking out a bunch of small businesses and paying off, you know, the latest skaters or whatever, it's nothing new in any form of industry, sport, culture. So mm-hmm. I more accept it for what it is. Right. I might not agree with a lot of it, but I like to, I, I see skating as based on like style, flow, character. Right. I don't look at skaters like, oh, he's the best. He's my favorite. Mm-hmm. That was never my thing. I could appreciate like ability but I was more about style, you know? Or even like, vibe. We, we'll yeah. like a, a, a skater because other than ripping, he is an artist or a DJ. Right, or well, like their, he... their character has a spirit as well, right. you know? Like, I've skated with some of the best in the world, for sure. Tony Hawk, skated with him, you know? He gave me a pat on the shoulder of respect. I got the same pat from Dwayne Peters in my life, and they were both. That's harder to earn. (laughs) For sure, but I had one day thought about that. Wow, they both gave me the same nod of respect in my interactions of skating with them. But I was more scared when Dwayne was creeping up behind me on the stairs to the vert ramp. I was like, oh, is he going to like punch me in the back of the head? (laughs) I don't know. I've heard so many stories, but he was the nicest guy in the world, Uh you know? Nice. uh, but he definitely gave me the hardest pat on, on the back of the hat. <laughs> Red hand but, slap back there. But I would never compare those two as skaters. They're right. just different styles. One is punk rock and the others might be more blues, you know? Right. They're very different skaters. You know, when I was 20, my opinion might have been different. But now, I totally admire and respect Tony Hawk on the same level as Dwayne Peters. Yeah. Everybody They're does, just different skaters. Everybody you know? does their own art, their yeah. own painting. And I mean, Tony Hawk brings ridiculous amounts of good energy to the skateboarding world and industry. But Dwayne Peters keeps it so raw to the grit of where it came from before any of the hype still. Mm-hmm. So I kind of see him as a different god than I see as Tony, you know. Right. And we're losing some of those like punk rock dudes that have been holding down the, the essence yeah. of skateboarding mm-hmm. with uh we had uh phelps die last year we had grosso die this year they're the ones yeah, who trying to pillars help, pillars of, of the vibe and the energy so you know that's why i i do those memorial pieces chris because like those people are important pillars and their spirit still stands for everything they stood for you know mm-hmm. the the flesh passes on but what they've left spiritually remains effective in in my theory you know totally so before skateboarding i believe you were a bmxer right well i was really into break dancing and bmxing nice tell me a little about the 80s bmx culture well 80s bmx culture we were basically into like little jumps and like freestyle you know like flat ground freestyle so i was pretty good at flat ground freestyle in like 82 83 and i rode with like three or four other riders i had the ghettoist bike because i was always hand-me-downs you know i never had a brand new bike in my life 
till later in life. But mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, those were some great years. I, I mean, I still love BMX with the same passion because I went full circle. I fell back in love with the whole aesthetics, you know, the parts, the colors, the frames, you know. So that's kind of like what ties everything I'm into is it all comes from the same place, which is essentially like untaught something you learn and do it live. yourself culture yeah sort of it's it's hard to put into words but things that i fell in love with that i didn't have to sign up or be coached on you know mm -hmm. so whether that be break dancing skateboarding bmx djing uh painting it all for me relates from one culture from the street the street that's where street i met culture. all these cultures none of them were, were taught to me or handed to me. I had to learn about them. So that's the difference today is sometimes I'll meet young writers that are actually pretty good writers, you know, and I'm just a closet writer. I'm nobody to the graph game, which is okay with me because I'm in love with the culture first. I've read the books. I, I've had mentors, you know, uh, met uh, heroes and legends. But you ask some kids today who Dondi is, and they have no clue. Mm -hmm. You ask them away about uh, spray can art or subway art, where we explain like these are some of the Bibles. You should read these. They'll always know Banksy, maybe Chipper Fairey. Yeah, and, but... and it's obviously evolution. I'm in my, I'm almost fifty, so I get it now. Because if someone asked me when I was twenty or, or fifteen certain questions, I wouldn't know either. But I think, especially now with the internet you can do your homework real easily, you know? Mm -hmm. And But I was also lucky to grow up around a guy like Akira, you know, legendary Montreal graffiti famous. writer that went to New York in the early 80s and brought back information and shared it and, you know. How long have you been spray painting? Me, I've been on and off spray painting since 83. Wow. That's so you're when probably I started. one of the most old school writers of this well, city. I am, but I'm not up by any means. No. You know, I'm a closet writer. I write for the love of graffiti. I don't write for fame. I don't uh, write with a big crew. I know most of the crews. I'm inspired by them, but I can't stop writing either. I've tried getting rid of all my shit and then I'm like doodling again, you know. Mm -hmm. But I'm a doodle writer, but. It took years for me to have the confidence to, to be my own writer because I didn't really write with other people. I wrote alone. I'd sneak under a bridge and bust a tag, you know. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I started to take more uh, initiative of my, you know, my approach. Like, oh, I, wanted, I was influenced by the way people would do color schemes and, oh, I like how they both did the same style letters. So when I would start meeting other writers, which would naturally be under a bridge or fucking in a skate park late at night, then I would start meeting other writers and doing, getting into collaborating. And Can I mention your graffiti name? Or? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you write Quiz 71. Yes. Because that's the year you were born. Exactly. And, uh, but I rarely see you actually painting Quiz 71 anymore. You usually are, are doing other people's names and usually it's people who, who mm. have died. You're kind of like the king of memorials these days, right? It was never planned like that. My point is, is with the big O and it being like a spiritual skate spot, I feel like you know, it's a spot for us, like, 
we admired some of these spirits, like whether it be uh, P Stone or Jake Phelps or did, uh, Grosso. J Boy. You know, and also Monk, for instance. Mm -hmm. These guys changed skateboarding. So for us to honor them at our mystical natural skate spot, it humbles us and it makes us want to skate even harder. You know, we still think like we're fucking 11 years old when we skate there. Mm -hmm. So no, none of the locals were against any of those memorials I did because I did it for the skateboarding culture. I didn't do it for me. I don't tag my name on those pieces. Right. You know. Akira, of course, always honored, not only yeah. as a skater painter, yeah. but also yeah. as somebody who skated the pipe and loved it so much. That's it, Chris. But I also feel like it motivates me to go and get my paint and... I feel like it's a worthy thing to paint for mm -hmm. where I don't, I very rarely do my own name at the O. I'll never do my name at the O actually, mm -hmm. you know, but even I'm jonesing to do a personal piece actually very much. But when that time comes, right. I try not to force energy these days. I'm so grateful with the things fulfilling my life that, you know, I'd be slipping to not recognize that first. I like the challenge to take on such a powerful, uh, you know, spiritual reflection of a spirit. It makes me work that much harder on it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because there's a purpose to it. Yeah. Other than boosting your ego. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, it's kind of happened naturally. Like one of the first memorials I ever did was for a skater named Casey McKay. Mm -hmm. And uh, he used to write Arrow. He used to write with this other really insane writer named Cruz. And Cruz passed away in 2016. But Cruz, yeah, anyways, long story short, I did an Arrow memorial, and I think it was like in uh, the late 90s. Mm. And so I've only realized recently it's a lot of these memorials, but I feel like people that pass away in, in a lot of these cultures we speak of, they, that's how we honor them. Mm -hmm. The hood puts puts them up, you know? Totally. So if I didn't do that, you it's know... It's like a proper 40 on the ground almost. That's kind of what I'm saying. But by me doing it through my embassy crew, I don't even put my crew name on there because it's bigger than us. It's not about us. I'm just kind of like letting the culture still ooze, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm oozing the spirit of the culture. I'm not really doing it. It's not really about me or... You know, right. I get my flick. I have my archives at home. You know, you ask me about it. We're going to find out some truths. Yeah. But, you know, it's always been for me growing up looking whether it was skate mags, BMX mags, music mags, car mags. You know, I grew up seeing these beautiful memorials. I remember one of the first ones was this like legendary BMXer, Dave Vanderspeck. Mm -hmm. And it, it said Vander. And it was done like days after he had passed away, you know, in I think it was the early 90s or late 80s. But it blew my mind, you know, the, the mm -hmm. honor and the respect. Mm -hmm. So I have influences way before that also feed that right. urge to share their spirit. Well, that's why we did uh, Akira's Alley in the back of my building a couple of years ago where not only we did that piece for him mm -hmm. but then we just captured the whole alleyway and people could express themselves freely in a way that you know Akira exactly would have liked. and his family members would end up going there to 
visit that alley as a spot to visit him because there was no headstone because he was cremated. Mm -hmm. So even me, when I'm in that hood, I go and I, I check the alley. I sometimes move the garbage can, you know, but as people of the streets, we want to be honored in the streets, not in some cemetery of sadness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. (laughs) It doesn't seem. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it is what it is, but like, yeah, that's kind of the, the, uh, point. But my whole thing again is, you know, I've also, some of the people I look up to in graffiti are such masters and kings of the craft that like, I have a hard time to draw because I have a high, I put a lot of pressure on myself in anything I do. I don't want it. I, you know, like any real writer, you don't want to be whack, especially when your forefathers are guys like Virus or, uh, you know, Hest One or yourself in your own art. It's like my influences are really, you know, like, uh, how can I say it? They're, they're sharp. Right. They're high quality. So it puts more pressure on me, but that's just part of the love of culture. You want to give yourself to it. You know, like I didn't grow up. try harder. That's it. Like I had to push myself in life, Chris. I didn't have a father saying, come on, Barry, you can do this, man. You got this. I had to stand there and find that within me. I had to get it through falling down and getting back up many times. Mm -hmm. So that's why in today's day and age, I try to appreciate the essence of a moment with a friend or, you know, flying on an airplane or every experience is so grand you know, in those party years, I passed a lot of shady, fuzzy moments where now I'm more uh, grounded. So, mm. you know, and plus having two kids, it, it, it puts you in a different perspective. I still vibe on all these cultural things I do, but by no means am I keeping up with any certain repertoire of expectation right. i'm just doing me you're not trying to play the game or anything well i'm happy you say that about like you know wanting to try harder on your art because now you know how i feel when i go skating with you <laughs> mm-hmm. because you rip so hard and I, i'm one. not that good but uh you mentioned uh embassy crew mm-hmm. uh what is embassy embassy crew is basically a group of friends that's grown over the last 30 something years It's all related through the love of culture, whether it be cooking, skateboarding, dance. We're all related through giving ourselves to our crafts. Mm -hmm. Who's who's in Embassy? There's obvious crew members like yourself, Mark Tisson, Jeff Edwards, uh, Vincent from Europe. Many names. My friend, my friend Saver sake loosely because that's the thing with embassy there's a lot of people that are part of embassy without even knowing yeah we don't even have like a paper saying like you're in you're out it's just kind of like the vibes it's not a it's not we are roots rock skateboarding crew first and foremost but we've grown in 30 years into many things we love so with embassy mtl our slogan is let it ooze if you love it you know live it let it ooze get it that's kind of the theory with embassy our spiritual outlook on life is live your life don't just exist or conform find your path sculpt it from there you know totally now you're uh well not just now but it's something that's been brewing for a few years it's uh embassy's turning into a little bit of a clothing brand along uh pierre right Mm mm-hmm 
my partner Pierre and I, who's also part of Embassy through BMX branch, also a DJ, we have been friends for over 10 years and we've come to an agreement that, okay, let's, you know, there was a little bit of like, you know, we've done many events. I never really got into like having the merch. And so now with this whole pandemic, more time, we made a decision to launch Embassy as an official brand, you know, a street brand mm -hmm. that, as I said, oozes culture. It's not a skateboarding brand. It's not a BMX brand. It's not a hip hop brand. It's an outlet of a lot of cultural visual designs, you know? Mm -hmm. A little bit of everything. Yeah, it will relate to a lot of stuff that people in our crew uh, are, are fused into, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, of course, a lot of the texture comes from the Big O history because we have 30 plus years there, Mark Tiso and I and other crew members. But by no means is it Embassy MTL, the Big O brand. Mm -hmm. We're just, we're more vast than that. You know what I mean? So our whole embassy logo, which is an open heart E, is a symbolism of letting it ooze. Like open your heart, you know, to the world. Not just these things we're in love with, but understanding and vision is what, you know, not to get too deep, but can give people a better outlook on communicating together as humans you know what I mean on a street I live in Park X it's one of the most cultural diverse neighborhoods on the planet mm -hmm. and I see mad shit here all the time man but we all I give the nod to all different types of people some nod back with that respectful hello some look at me like I'm crazy mm -hmm. but it doesn't alter my love for that same person you know right I've learned to like humble myself that you know, we live in a mad, these mad societies of rules and corruption and mm -hmm. you have to pick which things you want to involve yourself in. You know, if I see some guy beating up an old lady, I'm going to flex on that because that's partially part of my makeup is to act upon when you feel you should. The unrighteousness of the, uh -huh. you know, the world. But at the same time, I also know when to stare aware, stare, stare aware of someone's conflict is none of my business right you know? well that's beautiful that uh, embassy has that i never i saw the the symbol of the mm -hmm. of the montreal heart uh, creating an e but i never thought about it being open as it's an open heart right that opens up to different cultures yeah, it actually has people. a meaning that's a thing and the open heart is we gave our lives to our cultures I've given my life to skateboarding where my back hurts when I get out of this chair. It's part of giving my, my life to it. And I'm so grateful to, to have something so beautiful to, to, you know, surrender myself to or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that's why the whole thing with Embassy is it just, it came to the point where the next thing, we should have done a brand 10 years ago, but we were too busy living life and running wild. Right. Plus, having two kids, it gives me more focus. Mm -hmm. I feel we've earned the right to have our own brand after putting 30 plus years into the streets mm -hmm. of many cultural outlets, not just skateboarding. Right. And anyone who knows our culture and movement knows that we ooze 
the vibes. We're not oozing, uh, you know, we're not trying to take away from anything that we don't feel we've worked or earned, right. you know, but with all due respect, I respect all angles, movements. There's many great things going on in Montreal right now mm-hmm. that only excite me, you know what I mean? Right. With if my own people brand. People are doing well, like say Dime is the big clothing mm-hmm. brand and yeah. skateboard crew of Montreal and may it be a totally different vibe of what we're doing. We're stoked for them. You know, like, oh, that's great that oh, the younger sure. generation well, in, of our little mm-hmm. island in the east of Canada is yeah. actually like, uh, you know, acknowledged and admired around mm-hmm. the world. Yeah, Dime set it off, man. And I, I mean, they, it is what it is. And that's the sort of the beauty of it is they're in the moment in their era. My era was 25 years ago when I was in the game of, of uh, sponsorship and traveling and all that. But what I like about Dime is they've crafted their own way through their own outlet. You know, I, I mean, their videos are hilarious. They got their own style. The, the level of skating. I mean, you know, I don't... What I'm doing with Embassy is more based on on a, a lot of history and and whatnot but this is the beauty of it is there's there'll always be culture and then there'll always be hype mm-hmm. you know and there's room for both to work well together i believe mm-hmm. you know like we are the old we are the old school of the city our crew we are the oldest skateboard crew in montreal and dime is the most relevant hypest crew in probably north america let alone montreal mm-hmm. but i grew up watching these kids grow up from literal kids mm-hmm. so you know that's, they respect you we respect each other but my my point is is i'm like you know it's amazing what they've done you know it, it in our era, it was a lot different. We didn't have internet, you know, there was different, uh, we were, our crews were, you know, partying is another aspect we all go through, you know what I mean? Mm. Including those guys, right? I think something that's funny is that when Dime first came out, their first appearance was at a, the Shoot to Frill competition for Color Skate Magazine, where different crews had to do a, three minute video Ooh, right. and uh, they came out as the Dime Store crew and it was yeah. Antoine and Celine, I think Hugo Balik and uh, maybe Adam Green. Probably. And you, it was against you, Mark Tisson and uh, fucking Alex Gavin. Right. And you guys beat them. Even Back then you guys were already the old schoolers, older guys yeah. and you kept it really old school but you still beat them with yeah. the realness. Well know? the thing is too is it was just different. Our whole thing with with that shoot to thrill video is we chose to skate only natural skate spots mm-hmm. all natural and we also had uh you know there was four or five other crews from around the country mm-hmm. so we didn't really expect to win to be honest with you we were just like let's rep the city proper right. you know and let's show the essence of what we race. grew up with and who we are that was kind of our take. I think from what Sandro, the cat from Color, told me is it was the way it was edited. It was you skated natural spots, you added sound bites. We went a bit more artistic on the cut, you know. Mm-hmm. We were adding music to, this, to the black and white 16 mil film, which other crews didn't do. Mm-hmm. We had a soundtrack to our five minutes. Other crews just did one song. 
Mm -hmm. I'm not saying we were doing the best skating. We were just letting it ooze. Right. You know. Well, that's. I think that's uh, that's great. And uh, you, you know, know and I we love played vinyl in a backyard pool. We just bailed out through a boombox. Right. With, and you tried. You were. You know. You tried to go from the roof of the big O into the transition, right. and you broke your arm back elbow. or your elbow, yeah, dislocated elbow, proper terms. But yeah, yeah. that's part of the. That was part of the love and the push, you know what I mean? We're not often involved in industry uh, events, to tell you the truth. It was Alex Gavin who invited us to be part of it. We were like, dude, shouldn't you get some young new jacks, you know? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, no, I want you and Mark. Mm -hmm. So I said, all right, let's do this. That's awesome. I see Alex at the Mile End Skate Park once in a while. He's nice. still skating a lot. Sick. Um, so you brought up playing vinyl in the pool. How, let's, let's get a little bit into like Spoonbee, the DJ. Uh, how long have you been collecting vinyl? And uh, tell me a little bit about your, your selector uh, movements. Okay, so basically started collecting, my first record was Run DMC, Tougher Than Leather. And that was in like, must have been like 86, I think, 87. Yeah, I think it was around that, might have been 88. I don't know, somewhere in the late 80s. I had like uh, I had one of those systems with the record player on top, double tape deck, radio. Mm -hmm. I wanted a boombox, but you know my stepdad's like, "Oh, we can't find one." So I I I settled for that. Let's say. Mm -hmm. So so it was already on cassettes, and you had to keep it vinyl, like well, because I had that setup right with mm -hmm. double tape deck and vinyl. So I said, "Oh fuck, I'm gonna buy some records." But I realized I started to buy more tapes because it was just easier to pop a tape. And, right. you know, I wasn't like culturally inclined to the buzz yet of vinyl. I was just had a couple of records. But later I had bought some two record players off a friend in East Van, had that set up for a minute. But I was moving so frequently back then that I couldn't have a setup like this, you know. So that would go into Jody Morris, this photographer's grandmother's shed, which I never got back. And that was like 20 years ago that has a stack of really dope vinyl. Then around like 2001, 2002-ish, I started really collecting vinyl. Mm -hmm. And like, because I had decided, okay, I have, I'm going to stay in this loft for a while so i set up a, a sound in a little studio that's around the same time i started collecting vinyl too and it was so yeah. cheap back then you know that's it so like i started more like that and then like i had friends like Mossman, who's a historian when it comes to reggae culture so he would go to jamaica three times a year bring back these insane seven inch 45s and let me go through them before he cleans them then he would put a bunch of shit online, but I would tell him, you got to give me the homie price, you know? Mm -hmm. So I really started to fall in love with reggae 45s because mm -hmm. I had this crazy outlet. And then I could briefly get into my friend Patrick, who's like a spiritual advisor to me. And he's from Kingston, Jamaica in his late 70s. So I met his friends who would sell me their records. Mm -hmm. So people are always like, how does this guy have these records? That's my little mystery is I've been blessed by the universe to make these certain little connections, you know? Right. What it's really the best way I could put it because how do I end up with all these Studio One records, you know? Well, 
I got them from an elder that was lived in Kingston. Mm-hmm. So you mostly play rec- uh, reggae? Ninety percent, but I, I've held on to a lot of classic hip hop. Uh, I always have like a bunch of classic twelves, and I have a lot of hip hop albums. Mm-hmm. But I love music in general. You know, of course, I have a few uh, hundred records that are all genre, country, uh, you know, fucking p- a little bit of pop music, Madonna, whatever. But rock and funk, ideally, of course. what I really spend my money on is reggae, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I still buy hip hop when I see that like record I, I might want to have, you know. But most of the time, I'm buying stuff that's it's all from the '80s or back, you know. Yeah, and where where do you play? I've played a lot of different spots in Montreal. Obviously, right now with COVID, haven't been playing too much. But I mean, I've done weddings, I've done skate events, many house parties is obviously where I started in Saint Henry. And I remember we used to do weeklies at bars, or well, you used to yeah, do them, and that's when I first got my chance to play in public. Because you'd be like, "Hey, Chris, play mm. for an hour while I take a break." Yeah. So I'd play at a bar and be like, "Holy shit!" Like I'm playing for people, and there was never any pressure because it's just like chill bar mode, right. and we're not trying to make anybody dance, right? But that's kind of the best place to learn once you've learned somewhat in your own living room. It's the same way I started DJing to the public is first of all because I, I started to get good records and my friend Mossman would be, oh, I need a backup dude, you know. So he'd call me in. I'd be nervous, but once I did it a few times, you know, you, you fall in love with your records so then you'd play them the way you feel they should be delivered. Right, you know? or the way you would want to hear them. Yeah, I just try to be clean and like, you know. Didn't you open for Yellow Man at one point? I've opened for crazy people, man. Yellow Man, uh, Josie Wales, a few other heads, but Vernon Maytone. But ideally, again, I've been very lucky. I met Ike Mouse in San Diego and hung out with him for two weeks as a personal friend, you know? Uh-huh. The things that have happened on my path, there's a reason that reggae has come into my life. It wasn't something I chose. It's something that, I've always listened to like old super cat tapes and had a good friend who was really into reggae. So he would be schooling me. I was still buying hip hop tapes. But as I started to get older, I said, oh, this this reggae shit is deep. Mm-hmm. It was going deeper than the hip hop. And no comparison, just hip hop's a lot more adolescent. You know, the reggae, a lot of these singers are singing from like a a, a spiritual point of view. They're in their 80s. They're in their 70s, 60s. -hmm. So, like, I started to get more in touch with, like, the actual consciousness of what they're saying and also the amazing rhythms and, you know, musicians and a lot of the backup bands in the reggae culture have been classic backup bands for decades, you know, whether it's The Roots Radix or uh, Channel One or there's just so much. It's like hip-hop culture, I'm the kind of guy that I like to learn the root of the things I'm into, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I did that with, with uh, hip-hop. I did that with skateboarding or BMX culture. I always flipped through the mags all the years. Even if I didn't BMX, I still picked up BMX Plus in the magazine shop, you know? Mm-hmm. But that's just part of, like, falling in love with, you know, it's a, life, it's a, it's a lifetime bid, this culture. 
it's never ending. You can never get enough records. You know what I mean? Right. I'm humble with what I have because it's more than enough I could listen to for years. By the time I get to the front again, it's, you know, and the way I DJ in my house, I'll often just pick something. Oh, I got lucky. I yeah. want to hear this. Right. Sometimes I'll push it back. Oh, I'm not feeling that right now. You know the deal. Right. Like You must air pick sometimes. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you get lucky and it's like, whoa, I hadn't heard this for years. And, That's and it. the other day I reconnected with a Bunny Whaler record. It's like, oh yeah, I got a Bunny Whaler oh, record, so Black Heart Man. And That's a the second side, sometimes I record them for my computer and MP3 mm. so I get to use to songs but there was a bunch of songs in the back that I hadn't recorded and I was like holy shit like you know they got mm. all these versions that I haven't really really Got gotten in. into I, yeah. I guess I just put it into but uh, I wanted to make you a, another question related to reggae do you consider yourself um, a Rasta whatever that well, means what does it mean to you to well, be a Rasta? Well I can tell you I mean I'm, I'm inner city Rasta as far as uh, you know the respect is live and let live I'm not Rasta to the point where I don't eat any meat. I, I'm not, I don't conform to any form of religion, but if there's anything I do stand by, it's Rasta culture and Buddhism because they're ways of life. They're not religions. Mm -hmm. So plus they see no color, mm -hmm. regardless of commercial judgment. My point being is I've given my life to the things I love that are driven through passion and love which is what Rasta is based on. Mm -hmm. So that's where I consider myself inner city Ras because I conform to love, which over overtakes a lot of negative energies trying to come in. So I wouldn't say I'm a Rastafarian by any degrees, but I would say I'm an inner city Rasta. Totally. Um... I have many Rasta friends, uh, you know, I have blessings from many Rasta from Kingston, Jamaica. I grew up around a Rasta man when I was nine years old who I would re-later meet in my 30s that would become my spiritual advisor, mm -hmm. which is who's my friend Patrick. Patrick. And, you know, he also links me with boomboxes because he's an old school sound man, electronic shop that never moved in 35 years from the spot I met him. So his mm -hmm. basement, he's sitting on gold. And he used to work with King Tubby. So, oh, wow. You know, as I said, it's, this is just facts of my life that I've been very Irish lucky to have crossed paths with. Mm -hmm. Some of the stories Patrick tells me, I'm like, is that really true, Patrick? Like when he was Bob Marley's driver. Mm -hmm. They used to roll up to radio stations, Chris, and hold up the radio station, play the record. <laughs> And that's how Bob got on the radio. They were shunning him until Rude Boys... Patrick was part of that? Patrick was the driver. Oh, damn. So a lot of people don't realize Bob Marley was gangster, my, my brethren. He was a gangster, Bob. He was righteous, but his people of the hood went to the record stations and forced the records onto the platters. Sometimes that's how you got to work yeah. in this Babylon And people can system. do their research. They're going to find the truth. As I said, I'm, I know this from a personal person who was there you know mm -hmm. you you've met my brethren patrick he's i don't know i think I've, i have i'm pretty sure you have i always tell you to take yeah. me there so i can buy some of his records and i think you purposely yeah, yeah. keep me away so i don't take all the good, good stuff one. no 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 he's not a, he he's 
he's a simple sound guy. We'll go see him soon though, because you'll be blown away by his shop. He's worth interviewing. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to like get to meet him first yeah. and then see yeah. what, what's the vibes. So one of the things that uh, Rastas uh, typically do is smoke herb. You still do. What's your relationship with, with weed? Well, my relationship with the herbs is it grounds me. It gives me a closer, uh, closer relationship with my inner spirit. It makes me realize, makes me focus. It's, uh, it's grounding for me and nothing kind of makes me as clear as I am when I'm smoke herb. Tell you the real truth, you know, rather before legalization, my mother smoked herb. My first joint was rolled by my mom when I was 18. She said she'd never smoke with me, but when I started bringing the herb home, she she broke that rule. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. But I was a, above 18 at the time. Right. But for me, herb is my spiritual medicine. It's that simple. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I don't smoke as much as I once did. I've grounded and humbled to it as a upliftment rather than getting stoned, you know? Mm -hmm. I don't get stoned, I get enlightened, I get lifted. Nice, beautiful. That's a great relationship uh, with that natural plant. Mm -hmm. um, you're surrounded by your boom boxes. You wanna tell me a little bit about your boom box collection, your relationship with that? Basically, it all goes back to music. Mm -hmm. Boom boxes to me, I fell in love with them in the 80s through like the hype of hip hop culture. That was my first introduction. My first tape, 1982 Michael Jackson thriller. thriller. <laughs> we used to break to um, what was it called? Billy Jean. Okay. And Michael Jackson was one of the first breakers. Oh well, his music was dope back then. Especially Billy Jean was big in the b-boy culture. Mm -hmm. And back then, I mean, I was a kid, so I only knew so much depth. But I actually did breakdance with the New York City Breakers in 1982 because oh. they came to my town. Oh, nice. But on another note to the boom boxes is I always wanted one as a kid, you know. I saw the, the crews in the hood with them. I was like, but I knew I'd never get one in the circumstances of my family. So later on in life, you know, I got my first one. I ganked it from my stepdad's work studio and it was a little Toshiba but I've kind of just been picking them up here and there. But over the years of collecting them, they grew closer to me as like bodies. They're, they're basically vehicles of sound. Mm -hmm. They're more than just hip hop. They're like messengers of sound. It can be, that's why they were so powerful in the streets back in the seventies and eighties, because they brought people together. But what killed the boom box was the Walkman mm. because that pushed everybody away. Oh. When you put the Walkman on, you're in your own realm. You tuck your head. It's less community. That's it. So when, and when the Walkman dropped, it sold 400 million units. Wow. So what, the, what, when did the Walkman drop? I, I, I cannot imagine like a world a without Mid 80s. Mid 80s, early-ish mid 80s, I would say. It's hard to imagine a world without people having earphones in their right. ears because now everybody is just in their own little mini music world. Huh? Mm -hmm. So really, to tell you the truth, Chris, that's what 
it's it's that's why I want to do the big boom box on a major building in Montreal because I think it speaks to everybody whether you like classical heavy metal rap music reggae when you see that mural in your car at a red light I want it to let people like hear what they want to hear when they see it mm-hmm. I want it to reflect music mm-hmm. you know and that's a lot of people look at me they're like oh it's be he's a b-boy he's into hip-hop yeah it's become a stereotypical evolved, thing but i've evolved way bigger than that because i as i said i open my heart to music so it, it goes way further than the easy e tapes i used to collect as much as i still love easy e but i also like ras michael mm-hmm. you know there's there's just different influences of energies but yeah. the ghetto blasters at this point I don't go looking for them. They end up coming to me some way or another. And I don't pay more than a certain sum of funds because I have things that are more important. My tools are based for a certain reason, you know. But boomboxes, they they keep coming, you know. I just got this one recently. I, I fell in love with it. And mm-hmm. I don't compare the sizes. People always say, oh, that one must be your favorite, the big one. Like, no, not even. Like, mm-hmm. they're all fun for different reasons, you know? Right. I remember uh, probably five to ten years ago, you even had a art show where you gave boomboxes to different uh, artists in Montreal, mm-hmm. different painters, to paint on the boomboxes. And that was a beautiful yeah, situation. Yeah, that was a sick show, for sure. Those, like, you know, that's a whole other aspect of the boomboxes. They're paintable, like... For instance, this one right here, I just bought recently. The tape deck doesn't work, but it's super paintable. Oh, like if you feel gorgeous. that, yeah. you know the deal, Chris. Yeah, great this for paint just markers. This a nice big space. Mm-hmm. So this one will get painted. I like that brand, Realistic. I didn't yeah, know. dude, that's Radio Shack in the 80s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so they're beautiful to paint. Dude, you sit and you hold a boombox, you feel a certain rush, man. It's, mm. There's something about it. It's know? very real. Yeah, it's also like an iconic era that is what we call timeless. And when something's classic, it's timeless. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, man. Well, thank you for, for collecting those and no, for the ones cool, you sold man. me. I love my yeah, pieces. No, your collection is bad to the bone, Chris. And you know why I, I like... When I part with one, you know, I'll sell one and it'll pay for my daughter's uh, Irish dancing school. Mm-hmm. You know, I find reasoning. It's all just tools at the end of the day, material, you know. Mm-hmm. But the boom boxes I've sold to you, I know they're cherished and they're in a beautiful, how can I say it, protective state. Uh-huh. So. I'm not selling it to someone that's going to go fucking blast it with a shotgun for a video shoot, you know? Mm-hmm. And if he is going to do that, I charge him four times the cost. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all vibes and energies. Yeah, totally. Talking about business, uh, these days with COVID, uh, it's harder for people to get jobs. Uh, but luckily in Canada, we get this thing called the CERB, which is like yeah, 2000 bucks a month. The survey. <laughs> so what have you been doing with your survey? I, th- I think you've uh, created a whole brand new uh, business for yourself, right? Mm. Well, I've been paying bills for sure. Mm-hmm. But I've been, you know, I've been working on the embassy brand which you will see very shortly 
Also working on a few things musically. Just did a dub plate for Akira. Okay, nice. They will is, your mixtape, uh, the Boombox Bangers, come this out? Is, this is on the works. I've got the introduction done. Nice. But, yeah, in a nutshell, Raising Kids is my number one right now. Just I have my mm -hmm. five-year-old Rhea, my one-year-old Gracie. Mm -hmm. So... That Congratulations. You you just had her last year and you're like yeah. 48 right now? I'm 49. 49. She just turned one like a week ago. Mm -hmm. But so never too old to be a dad, eh? No, mm -hmm. never. Be careful what you wish for, though. Gives me hope you know, as a 41-year-old yeah. who still hasn't reproduced. Mm -hmm. But no, Sula and I, my uh, lovely lady, we are more than like we're beyond humbled to have two beautiful girls you know it's still surreal to me chris when i wake up and i see these these flowers in my life it's trippy i was like holy shit barry's gonna have a kid it That's is gonna be but I'm... dude it only grounds you more if you're receptive to it right you know if i let fear take over i probably wouldn't be here but i embrace love brother so for me, it's natural. I never feared the tools of Babylon. It never slowed me down. Mm -hmm. You know, I might live a little humbler. I might not have all this and that, but I'm not ideally a huge material person. If you look around, it's all culturally uh, fueling to me, you know? Mm -hmm. And same with my girl, Sula. She's a, a dancer, so she understands flow and 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 energies so my own my daughter Rhea, her name in greek means flow mhm mm well she's turning out to be like the coolest little kid ever she's a little crazy and wild but uh but yeah but we i've been teaching her all these you know antidotes of life just through everyday living playing with my old dinky cars uh you know, in the beginning, we'd go buying all these toys. And we're like, why am I buying all this plastic crap? Then I give her like my old Tonkas and she's more happy with that. So uh -huh. my, my Rasta brethren, Patrick, schooled me. He said, Barry, you give your child a stick. They're going to play with it more than the $200 Fisher Price you just bought. Mm -hmm. So he schooled me on some stuff that I realize is actually very efficient to his word. Uh-huh. So, plus I'm very hands-on with my children every day. We're, you know, wilding out. That's why there's protective stuff everywhere, mm. you know. But, uh, but no, right now I'm basically like in such a, I'm in a tough position because I want to move in six months, which is all lined up. But I'm also a little bit antsy and I don't like winter. You know, I'm not a winter guy, and I know you're probably not either. Yeah, that's why I duck out. <laughs> but yeah, really, right now, I'm more focusing on, like, being prepped to move and, uh, you know, cooking good food every day and enjoying music and staying up, you know? Are you, um, you know, with two kids now that you got to raise, are you optimistic about the future of the world? Definitely optimistic. It's a little bit scary, no doubt. But like, you know, I really do highly believe that I teach my children nature first so they understand the actual truth, you know, how things work and how things flow and, you know, consequences of actions. And I'm teaching a lot of stuff I learned through pain and suffering of not having a guide. So I feel it's my honor to have such knowledge to share with them. 
So I never see it as a duty, Chris. I see it, you know, if it's a duty, then you're probably not in the right headspace or something. Mm -hmm. For me, it's like I'm most grateful for the almighty universe giving me the the groundness to take on so much energy, you know, because children, anyone who has kids knows. Mm-hmm. that first day with your your newborn baby was like oh my god this is forever it's it's quite a shock some people have post-trauma and me i didn't have any of that like herb guided me <laughs> having a loving uh strong woman guided me like sula we have two 100 natural births mm-hmm. no medicine in a beautiful bedroom in a birthing center you know mm-hmm. So that's something I deeply cherish and respect about my girl Sula is she went through the most, you know, hardship to to give our children the best health, you know, right. from from the beginning. And I had the experience of being there. And was I ready for that? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But you find out what how deep you can go when you're in that situation. It grows you. And I was amazingly calmly calm, but I trusted the universe. Take me, universe. Mm. Guide I. Sounds very shamanic. Yeah, well, that's Chris. It was like my lady could die there. Mm. That's how real that is. Some people do. It's like a portal of life and death is being opened and you're just holding ground and hoping for the best, but also ready Mm. to let go if that's what the universe wants. That's it, Chris. And the thing is, I used to be a heavy worrier in my childhood because I dealt with so so much fear, midnight moves, violence, all kinds of madness. But I had realized later in life that certain things you have to surrender to and be then you can see where there's reparation or whatnot after. But Mm. I trusted everything would be fine. Even when Sula would ask me, Barry, what do you, I'd be, Mm. we're in great hands. We're healthy, we're ready, we're willing. You know, I went through steps with her and she she just, you know, I was there the whole time. Even when I, my second baby, the the midwives told me you could be a, a midwife. Mm. I don't know if you call it a mid-man or whatever. Because yeah. <laughs> I was so in the cut of what was going on. But, dude, that's my child being born. I'm not mm. one of these guys that stands in the corner. Is it, is it done? You know, mm. I was there. I, they wanted me, offered me to catch Gracie mm. wow. in the birth. But I didn't want that. That responsibility was just too much for me. I right. said, no, I don't want to, like, slip. Or yeah. I had my own... It wasn't that I didn't want to be spiritually in the cut. Yeah. It was just I'm not good with blood you're, to start. You're not professional in that No, sense. and I was like, leave that to these beautiful women that are do this. They, yeah. you know. But I was obviously baby to mommy, then straight to the dad. You well, know. But it was the best moment of my life, Chris, That's obviously. So cool. It overcame everything. The only thing that could compare is maybe like a six-foot tail grab 540. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that I only did once or twice. So. Or if you get your McTwist at the, at the big O. Yeah, there's other things that can reach such, but you know, it, I did just had a kid last week. Eh? I know that's amazing, man. I'm so stoked for him. Yeah. I bet he's buzzing for sure. Oh yeah, I'm so but happy. But you see, for him. a guy like Addy, I would never worry about because I know he has what it takes. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's wise. Yeah, you have to he's be. Good. You have to be somewhat spiritually inclined with your spirit and your heart. 
mm-hmm. to to raise children. I mean, my father may not have been, but I still fought through and and was like in some ways tapped into things that showed me where to put my love and my energy, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why I consider myself very lucky because I could have, as a child, I wanted to be a bank robber, Chris. <laughs> you know, it was bank robber or NHL. And then I realized I was too small for the NHL. So mm-hmm. bank robber it was. Mm-hmm. Then I got into BMX and skating and then everything just guided me. Do you that. think that because your dad wasn't a good dad and he ducked out from your guys' lives, did that motivate you to be a better dad? For sure, it motivated me naturally to be a better dad, but it really wasn't a big factor because I was already inclined with my spiritual duties of creating life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like if I choose to to go through that action and create, I'm sure as hell going to be there for the reality. I'm Mm -hmm. not the kind of guy, I'm not built to step away. I couldn't do that. No matter my hardships, mm-hmm. my life is my children, Chris. Mm-hmm. You know that. I mean, I don't go out anymore. I don't do a lot of things. I see you less and less, sadly enough. You know, but I but when I it, do you know? go out, I make it count. Yeah. You know, But there's no lost energy in my life because I'm so fulfilled with such a powerful position. You know, mm-hmm. That when, you, when, when my kids are sleeping and I have a moment to like do whatever I do in that time space... I appreciate it even more. But I also had that 20 years wilding out, you know, Mm -hmm. traveling out of nowhere, fucking making decisions on the fly. I still live like that, only I have a, there is some more form of structure now Mm because there has to be with children. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, dude, I am almost 50, right? Like, I gotta (laughs) find a, a balance. Yeah, but that's you sort still of how play, I work. You know, you still play by your own rules, and that's a beautiful yeah. thing. I no, think. I, that's one of the biggest blessings of being, you know, kind of a misguided youth is that I got to tap into the things I loved, and I've been doing all this stuff since I was a child. So when I quit school in grade nine and told my principal and my mom, like, this is going to be my life, and they laughed at me, I'm here this 30 something years later, and my mother finally gets it like, wow, you're the happiest of all my children. Mm-hmm. You're the one that's never asked for money. You're the one that's practically never even around because mm-hmm. I lived out of city for so many years. But I was self-sufficient because my time was occupied by all these like events and things that I would, you know, ooze into. Mm-hmm. Well, we're coming to the end of our interview. Would you have some final words of wisdom to our millions and millions of viewers out in this uh, YouTube show? I would say live and let live. You know, don't be afraid to share. Don't be afraid to, uh, you know, take risks as life is once, as far as we know it in the flesh. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just take every day, one day at a time. Don't get too altered by... Uh, too many crazy ideas and antidotes and fucking viruses. The situation of the world yeah. and the theories of what it's all about. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, basically, you know, like live and let live and be grateful for every day and uh, love the ones you're with and uh, take it from there. 
Nice news. Well, thank you so much, All Barry. Right. You're the best, Bless. brother. Love you. Thank, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this very interesting conversation with my friend Barry. Please make sure to like, subscribe, share, comment about anything you liked about it. And yeah, tune in next week and we'll keep on having more fun. Blessings. Peace. Next week, my guest will be Make Noise. I don't know, I mean, but I just kept on doing it for real. It's like a disease, man. I need to do it. Sometimes, like early in the morning, I wake up at like 5 or 4.30, man, I need to go and I jump in my car and I hit some spots. If you do art at home and you do a canvas, it's good. But if you do it in the streets, you know, yeah. c'est pas, pas bon. No, c'est pas bon. <laughs> and you know, like skateboarding in the street, it's like a white page. Like everybody can do its own trick on the crack. It won't look the same, you know? Mm -hmm. Art's the same. So make sure to subscribe, like, and everything else. Big thanks and see you next week. Peace.